Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. We use every single aspect of the animal. And so what we like to say is we take the best of the past, the ancestral history of how what built us today and made us humans. And then we marry that in with the modern world. And it's very difficult, as you know, out there with everything in the food industry to be able to compete against. So what we like to say is we take the foods that people eat every day and make them the healthiest versions possible. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hey, mom, do you want to tell me about your slow living moment that you had yesterday? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, you know, December is such a busy time and we're all kind of running around thinking of things we have to do or supposedly. And here on this podcast, we talk about slow living and taking a moment to slow down. And I had something happen to me yesterday that I felt like really was a moment of being present. And here it is. So I went out on the porch and this bird had gotten caught in the porch and it was a big bird. This happens a lot. And I usually just prop the doors open and the bird will find its way out. But this was a big bird and it was really struggling and it was really banging itself against the screen and going everywhere and just really kind of having a hard time. So I just stood there and watched it for a minute and it went to the ground and sat down and I saw it was a dove. And It was very quiet and kind of stunned, I guess. So I thought, I'm going to try to pick it up. So I went and got like a tea towel and it just sat there and let me gently cover it up. I was able to pick it up inside the towel and, you know, its head was still poking out. And I just had this beautiful moment with this little dove and I sat and I stroked it and I looked in its eyes and it. (laughs) we kind of had a little moment of connection. It was just beautiful. I really, I looked into its eyes. I was really close to it. And I saw that it had hurt itself. There was like a little place on its neck that had been rubbed raw. And so I didn't know how injured it was or if it was in shock or whatever. But I just sat there for a moment and held it calmly and told it that I hope it would be okay. And then I walked it out in the yard and I put it down in a clump of grass thinking it would be protected there. But as soon as I let go and backed up, it took off and it flew way up and over across the lane. And I saw it join another dove on a branch. Oh, wow. I thought that was so cool. I love that. That's super cool. The dove whisperer. (laughs) Well, it was just such a nice moment and took me out of my tasks for the day. And it helped me slow down. Yeah, that's awesome. 
Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So have you had an opportunity to slow down over the last several days? Yeah, I don't know. It's been pretty busy, admittedly. Pretty much not living super slow living the way that I want to be at the moment. But in a couple of weeks, when the holiday break is here, I will really be able to slow down. So my slow living these days really just kind of looks like stealing some time to watch Great British Bake Off, which I find is a very (laughs) slow living show. It's really lovely. Yes, that's my slow living moment. (laughs) That's fun. It's really great to immerse yourself in something you enjoy like that. And I don't apologize for getting hooked on a Netflix show or something every now and then. I I just, it's fun. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of like reading a good book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes and no, but whatever. (laughs) That was kind of a joke. So, yeah, I just also wanted to mention quickly again, we mentioned them a few weeks ago, but the podcast Discover Ag with Natalie and Tara, they are co-hosts. It is a wonderful podcast if you are interested in farming, professional farming, and current events. So basically every Thursday, Natalie and Tara give their professional farming opinions on the trending topics in the ag and food space to help us better understand the food system and connect with the hands that feed us. They're really fun. They're great friends. And so it's quite entertaining and also informative. And it's really helpful to know what's going on in the world of agriculture. So definitely check out the Discover Ag podcast if that's something that interests you. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thanks for reminding us. I appreciate that. Yeah. So another thing I wanted to remind you about is the Good Dirt Pledge Drive. So that's for this podcast, The Good Dirt. We're currently running a really fun pledge drive through January 7th, where if you pledge a monthly contribution to the production of the show, you qualify for a tier that has certain rewards affiliated with it. So you can check out all of the details on that on the website. It's also linked in the show notes. And we're really excited to have this way for audience participation in the show and to create a way to just get more connected to our listeners and to reward our listeners for their commitment to keeping the show going. And we thank you so much for that. And yeah, it's good dirt pledge time. So (laughs) that's what we're talking about. Yes. Thank you so much, everybody. We do need your support in keeping this show going. And we encourage you, if you enjoy it, if it's something you value, to take a look and consider allocating some of your resources to the efforts. So thank you very much. Should we head into the guest for today? Sure. All right. So in this episode, we're talking to Christina Schindler, who After spending 20 years in public education as a teacher and an administrator, she has embarked on a business venture with her family as the CEO of the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, which is a foodery in Chestertown, Maryland, that optimizes nutrition in modern foods through ancestral techniques. And in this way, they create healthy food for their family and the community. Christina also serves as president of the Eastern Shore Food Lab, which is a nonprofit that is focused on creating a nourishing, ethical, and sustainable food system through education, outreach, and research. Most importantly, she is the mother of three busy teenagers and married to Dr. Bill Schindler, 
author of Eat Like a Human. In this conversation, we'll be talking about the extraordinary adventures of this enterprising family, from living and traveling abroad to serving their community through this very unique restaurant and Christina's work with the nonprofit. We'll hear about their food journey as a family, practical tips for healthy eating in a busy modern world with kids, their years-long quest for gaining knowledge about ancestral foods, and how you can live in a suburban neighborhood and still accomplish things that most people would think you need to live on 20 acres to do. This is a wonderful conversation for anyone interested in embracing ultimate health through ancestral foodways and a great story of how this family has brought it into the context of modern family life and business. So here is Christina Schindler, mom, nonprofit president and CEO of Modern Stone Age Kitchen. Christina Schindler, and I am the owner and CEO of the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, located in Chestertown, Maryland. And I'm also the president of the Eastern Shore Food Lab, which is our nonprofit. And I am a former educator, which sounds really strange to say out loud because I did all my education in education to be a teacher. I started in the fifth grade classroom and went through into special ed. And I just recently, in the last three years, left uh, the field of education, actually during COVID. I was the supervisor of special education in a neighboring county. One of my areas of expertise was assistive technology. So I did a lot to support students with disabilities. And I was at the beginning with the iPads and the iPod touches and to help kids communicate and things like that. So that's where my background is in technology. So my most important job is being a mother of three, which to say this one out loud blows my mind. So my youngest turned 16 on the 11th. Brianna, our oldest, just turned 20 on the 18th. And you can all laugh. And our son will be 18 on Saturday. So we have all three within 12 days in September. So we joke and say this is our even year now because they're 16, 18, and 20. So to say that I have a 20-year-old out loud now just you know, kind of feels funny. And I've been married. Uh, my husband is Dr. Bill Schindler. He wrote a book called Eat Like a Human. And we're putting all that into practice right now at our modern Stone Age kitchen. So I am one of those people who have pivoted from education, but yet you're always a teacher. It doesn't matter, especially as a parent, right? You're always, always teaching. So I've been able to put those skills now into practice in a totally different arena, which has been really exciting. That's so cool. And tell us about Modern Stone Age Kitchen. So this is a bright spot of COVID. I know everybody has their own COVID story and what happened as a result of it. And I know a lot of people made sourdough bread, but believe it or not, we made it on a very, very large scale. So my husband was a professor at Washington College here on the Eastern Shore of Maryland in Chestertown. And he built and was the director of the Eastern Shore Food Lab, which is our nonprofit. So when COVID hit, all the kids went home. He's like, what am I going to do? And what he focuses on is looking at the archaeological record and how that impacts our current modern food system. So he does everything from fermentation and nose to tail butchering and all these kinds of things. So he looked and he saw a lot of bags of flour. And we had a social action committee in town that was giving out food baskets to people in need. Fantastic. They were also giving out kind of like white wonder bread. So he's like, at least I can come. I've got all this great flour. I can make sourdough bread and give it out to them. So our oldest, Brianna, at the time was 16. And she was completely bored with online school. And she was like, Dad, I'll come up and help you bake bread. So they would bake between 80 to 100 loaves of bread a week and donate it to the social action committee, which was great until all the flour ran out. So Brianna really took a liking to baking bread. And like I said, she was kind of bored with online school. So she's like, 
I think I could do this at home. So meanwhile, before we had this commercial kitchen here in town for the students that Bill had built, we actually have a makeshift commercial kitchen down our basement. So as restaurants have gone out of business and for your listeners at home who wanna find a great way to increase what they are able to produce at home, look at all the restaurants that are going out of business. It has been fantastic. We got these huge ovens that are tens of thousands of dollars for like 400 and we would be able to bake things at home. Oh yeah, so we have a whole commercial kitchen down our basement, the big stainless steel tables. So if you wanna bring in half a pig to butcher like in your basement, and by the way, we live in suburbia, like live in a neighborhood with neighbors right next to me. We don't live in the middle of the woods. So it's a different dynamic. My husband throws a half <laughs> pig over his shoulder and brings it into the basement. But we knew we had this kitchen down our basement from prior years. So Brianna started baking bread and she built a website called Rise by Brianna. Literally overnight, she put out samples of Easter of 2020 and walked them to our neighbors. And that was like when you were masked and you had gloves and you would like run and drop it. And like, you know, people would wipe it off with Clorox. You remember those days? And she had 13 orders the first week and we would do deliveries on Saturday and it just grew exponentially so much so that we were doing eight hours of deliveries on Saturdays. It was crazy. And she just had her permit. So she got so many hours under her belt. And then Bill's book, Eat Like a Human Sold. And this is one of those times as a family, it's like, what are we doing? Like, how do we want to spend the rest of our lives? I saw myself sitting in IEP meetings on Zooms not necessarily happy with the direction of, of what I needed to do in education and then what I was actually able to do. Those two did not match at all. And I struggled philosophically so, so much. So we took the jump as a family and I left education that first year and we focused on Rise by Brianna. We have kind of some rules in our family of what we do and don't do in terms of food. So cottage laws, so we're in Maryland. So in terms of what cottage laws we were able to do, we're not doing cookies, we're not doing jams, we're not doing the sweet sugary things like that. The only thing that we really could legally do out of our house was sourdough. So we knew we needed to get into a commercial kitchen. So we we tried to be able to work with the Eastern Shore Food Lab where my husband was employed to be able to kind of work under the auspices of the college, but it just wasn't the right fit. So we ended up, my husband left education too. This is all kinds of crazy. I mean, he had a tenure track position and it was a really big deal, as you can imagine, to take this jump. So he's left two years now. So we now, the modern Stone Age kitchen to your first question here, Emma, is we put everything into practice in our book, Eat Like a Human, and we make everything 100% from scratch. So Rise by Brianna, what started it is our sourdough line of products. So we make everything 100% a wild, slow fermented sourdough. So whether it's our croissants, we do do cookies, we do breads, we do pretzels, we do bagels everything goes through the sourdough process. We don't use any refined sweeteners. So we only use maple syrup or honey or muscovada. We use a whole nose to tail approach to butchering. So we use every single aspect of the animal and everything from scrapple to pate to ham on our sandwiches. We bring in all our dairy from local milk. Maryland raw milk's illegal, unfortunately, but we have a, a local farm that just does the pasteurization level just to the legal point. And then we can actually make cheese from that. So we ferment all our dairy, whether it's yogurt or our cheese that goes on our sandwiches. Oh, we don't use any industrial nut or seed oil, of course. So we only fry in lard, high quality animal fats we use. So we kind of have all these rules and that we in our modern Stone Age kitchen. So what we'd like to say is we take the best of the past, the ancestral history of how what built us today and made us humans, and then we marry that in with the modern world. Because what's really important is, I gotta be honest, I get three kids, well now, young adults, and it's very difficult, as you know, out there with everything in the food industry to be able to compete against. So what we'd like to say is we take the foods that people eat every day and make them the healthiest versions possible. 
just really an incredible story. And you and your husband shifting careers and all this during COVID. Wow, what a productive time. Those times of great transformation are very frightening, but this is fascinating. Can you like just sort of tell us in summary, I know this is, you know, eat like a human is an entire conversation itself, but what does it mean to eat like a human? What's the kind of nuts and bolts of that? So if you think back to how we've kind of grown these brains and these bodies, it's how we ate real food, right? But people also did something to the food. And what we like to say is that idea of processed food, totally different. When we talk about processing food here at the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, we are processing food to make it healthier, to make it more nutrient dense, to make it more bioavailable for our bodies. But the modern food system is processing the food despite that, right? They're taking out the nutrients, they're taking out the calories, they're taking out the fat, they're taking out the gluten, like they're taking everything out. So when we talk about eating like a human, we're looking at how to process food that's in our natural environment to make it as healthy as possible. So everything, and that's what we joke about, we have about 25 employees now. So that's like a huge story too, from a community perspective that we've been able to create 25 jobs in our community in two years, like makes my heart so stinking happy. But Cisco doesn't roll in and drop off cheese or drop off peanut butter. Like when we make a peanut butter cookie, we soak the peanuts first, then we dehydrate the peanuts, then we make the peanut butter. Like everything has a process and everything takes time. And I think that's what's difficult too in our modern world that we don't have necessarily that time sometimes to be able to devote to food production. But in the same time, what we try to teach people is there's a huge difference between active and inactive time. So if we're soaking the peanuts, okay, so they soak overnight. So you put them in a 2% salt solution and you sit them in the Cambro overnight. Your active time on that was a minute. You know, if that, then you're putting them in the dehydrator. What does that take? two minutes to put them in the dehydrator. So when people can get a grasp of, of the time, but it's also not something that you can do immediately. So if you want to roll in for dinner and have sourdough pasta that night for dinner, well, I'm sorry, that's not happening. You had to plan that one a couple days prior, but you can do it. And it's definitely manageable in our busy modern worlds. Slow food yeah, you have to plan ahead and things are kind of in stages. So yes, to your point, it's it's not like you're busy rising the sourdough for overnight. It's doing it itself, but you have to plan and set it up. So I run into that, you know, so much in my adventures with real food. We're big real food fans at Lady Farmer. We talk about it a lot. You bring up a really interesting distinction about how our early ancestors processed foods. And you're right, processed foods throws us all into caution, you know, oh, don't eat processed foods. But, and we talk a lot about foraging too, but I think what a lot of people don't connect in their minds sometimes is that you can't just, well, some foods you can, but you can't just like wander through the forest and just eat things straight from their source. Something has to be done with them much of the time. So, and this is what our ancestors figured out, right? Fire. They did. Yes. How did they figure out like fermenting? Uh, that's interesting. Yes. What kind of crocker vessel were they using to be able to figure that one out? Who? It'd be interesting, yeah. What what led to that discovery? You know, I don't know. So is all this in your husband's book? 
It is. I think chapter three of his book is about uh, fermentation. So the nice thing about his book, and I have it at this over my shoulder here somewhere, each chapter breaks down a different food category. And I think that makes it very accessible to people. So, you know, one chapter is on grains, one's on meat, one's on dairy. And then within that chapter, it talks about, we've been very fortunate to have traveled around the world and learned from indigenous groups. So it's not just book research. It's been hands-on, <laughs> mouth-on eating. We just got back from Sardinia eating maggot cheese and we did literally nose to tail, the goat all the way through, ate the cheese out of the stomach, like within 10 minutes of it being, oh, we've done it all. So yeah. So the book has all those stories in it. And then again, we're not doing that here in Maryland. That would not necessarily fly. I don't think we have a big customer base for that, but what we've learned, we then put into practice in terms of the modern food system. So tell us about those travels with your family. Is this something y'all do every summer or how does that work? So we've been traveling internationally for well over 15 years, I guess now. So we started them young and I can't stress it enough about how important it is to be abroad, to travel. And I think if people realize, I don't want to say how inexpensive it is, okay, traveling is expensive across the board. But if you search for flights the right way and everything, you can really make it work because we're a family of five. So it was always expensive to be able to get abroad. But compared to a trip to Disney World, I think that's really important to note. Like we went to Disney, the whole inclusive, it was my parents' big anniversary for like a week. We went and spent a month traveling. We flew into France. We went down to Spain. We came up, we were in Belgium all the way around for less a month family of five living in Europe than for a week in Disney World. So, you know, there's things that people really need to consider when, when, so for us, that's where we put our money. We put our money into traveling and giving the kids experiences. So they're very well-traveled. I, I don't even know how many countries we've, we've done now. So from South Africa to Thailand to Mexico to pretty much everywhere in Europe we've been. And in all those places, we kind of had two purposes. One was to work with an ancestral group of people. And then one was also to work with someone who was producing that type of food in a modern sense. So when we were in Mexico, as an example, and we started in Mexico City and we went to Cali Maze where they do nishtamalization of corn. And they do that on a commercial uh, level and they have a restaurant in Mexico City. So they're doing an ancestral process. Are you familiar with nishtamalization of maize? No. So here's some maize, some corn. You can see it looks very different than what we're used to in the States. This is actually how maize used to be. So if you look at that, what, what do you see? Oh, gosh. It does not look like corn. It looks like... It looks... I don't know if this is just the, the view and the camera, but it looks fuzzy. <laughs> that is an individual oh, husk okay. on each corn kernel. Oh my gosh. So it is yeah. fuzzy. Could you imagine? It <laughs> okay. is fuzzy. Like, can you imagine? Okay. So nishtamalization, if you talk to my husband, he could give you a whole dissertation on it. It's a whole chapter in the book, but it's an ancestral process that allows your body. It actually starts kind of breaking down the maize. So your body can actually access the nutrients that is in maize, one being niacin. So there's a whole story. Of, that's actually one of the reasons why our food is now fortified baked goods with niacin, because there was a deficiency in the past called pellagra for people that were eating maize, but weren't able to actually get the niacin out of it. Because think of about it. It was right through your system. So if you nishtamalize the maize, it's already has started to break down the outer shell of the corn. So your body can actually get the nutrients, one being the niacin out of it. So long story short, the big thing I talk about processing is you have to use cow. So this is actually from Oaxaca. Cal, C-A-L, baking soda would be a modern substitute for it. It's an alkalized solution and you soak it overnight in that solution. So Cali maize, 
in Mexico City, they do this on a modern level now using an ancestral process, which is awesome. We then learned from the group there, but then we went to the mountains of Oaxaca and we learned from an ancestral group who is doing this traditionally still in the same way. I mean, they're living in a village with dirt floors and they walk down to the Molino every day and they grind their maize every day and make their tortillas. I mean, they're eating pounds of masa every day into tortillas. So that's one thing when we traveled with the kids and when we do travel with the kids, we really try to find that balance between seeing it at the modern level and how people are utilizing these ancestral techniques, but then also learning from people who are still doing it today and bringing the recognition to those groups because it's really important that they're recognized and those cultures and those traditions are preserved. So when you introduced yourself, you told us Pretty much since COVID, your transition from teacher to what you're doing now with the family business. But I wonder if you could go back a little farther. I imagine that this is also tied to your husband's work and his journey being written the book. But what is your personal journey connected to getting in touch with ancient food and how we eat? (laughs) That's an interesting one because I refer to myself as a recovering vegetarian. So I was a vegetarian for... 15 years. It was pretty much, oh yeah, like long time. It was pretty much seventh grade. We were married. Like he married me. He was like the hunter and like married the vegetarian, which is kind of funny. It wasn't until our first daughter was born and I was nursing. So I was a vegetarian, even being pregnant and I craved kielbasa. So I'm half Czech. It was something my grandmother made growing up. And of all the dishes I craved, it was really funny. It was like going back to my ancestral roots, I guess you could say. And like literally my first gateway back to from being a vegetarian was kielbasa. That's a cured meat, right? Yes, it is. It's like a sausage. Kielbasa is what? Kielbasa. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes. So for me as a vegetarian, I ate chicken and fish and my mom made a beautiful spread every night for dinner. I just never liked the red meat. I just never did the blood. It just wasn't for me. I just couldn't get my head around that. And it wasn't until, and actually Bill and my, probably our largest argument was over a deer. So we met in a restaurant in Princeton. He was the new bartender. I was the new waitress. Long story short, he also bartended at this like dive in the wall bar in Princeton for all the locals. And you know, that would be the bar that'd be open till like three in the morning. And I would go and count quarters for him at the bar at the end of the night. And I'll never forget, we had to work a double the next Sunday and we're driving home. This is probably like four in the morning now. We got to be back in, you know, for a double in a couple hours. And we're on a highway driving and there's a car on the side of the road and there's men that are like sprawled on the grass and the ambulance was just about to pull up. And my maiden name's Nightingale. So I feel like Florence is in me somehow too. So where do I go? I run to the men. My dad always had me prepared. I have the blanket in the back. If somebody's in shock, like I'm ready to cover these guys with blankets and Bill disappears. And I'm like, where the heck is he? And now we're just dating at this point. Well, here these guys were coming back from a show. They were banned and they hit a deer. So he finds the deer down the road because clearly it was down the road and the deer was still alive. And then the police showed up and the cop wouldn't fire his gun to kill the deer because it was really badly injured. So Bill asked for the gun and the guy's like, you know, son, I can't do that. So anyway, crazy, crazy story. But meanwhile, Bill's like, (laughs) we're driving my Nissan Stanza and he wants to take the deer home. And I didn't realize, I was like, you want to take the deer home? Like, what are you kidding? Like we have a double tomorrow. Like you're not putting the deer in the back of my Nissan Stanza. And he was adamant. Like we're taking it back like to his apartment. Like we're not taking it back. We fought like the whole way. And we got back to the apartment and we should have went to bed and we continued to have this conversation. It wasn't a conversation. It was an argument. We were having a totally different conversation because I, in my head, I had this thought that 
He wanted to bring it home and like put it on the wall like a mount. Because for me, that's all I knew was when you went hunting, you mounted it and you put it on the wall. I didn't know per se about the food source that that was. In his mind, he just saw dinner for the next week and how he was going to break that down because he knew it was the freshest meat possible. And it wasn't until I said something about putting it on the wall and he looked at me, he's like, Christina, it has one antler. And then he was holding up the other. He's like, I've got the other antler. Like I'm not putting it on the wall. It's for food. And that was kind of the beginning of the whole journey for me of realizing not only animals for food, but the whole animal for food and honoring the entire entire animal for food. And we've raised our kids that way. So our son, it's nothing for him to go out and get a deer, gut it in the woods, take out all the organs, bring it back, hang it, cut out the loins, get the loins in the pan, and he'll, you know, strip them or whatever he cuts up with the heart and everything, how he cooks it. And he'll have it, you know, served on the table within a half an hour of shooting a deer. And we make sure that we use all parts of the animal. So it's been quite a journey. So coming from someone who didn't eat any meat to then marrying someone who eats it all. But, you know, he's taught me and shown me along the way the benefits, but also I feel the benefits and I crave it now. And that's, uh, I think is, is huge too. I mean, I just, it's like, I just want a steak or I just want a burger or I just want bacon. So it is ironic that we own a sourdough bakery but we don't need a lot of bread. <laughs> so, you know, last night our son had a soccer game about two hours away. And that's always a struggle is eating on the road as a family. Like, how do you find something healthy? But I mean, our go-to is always to find at least a burger place and get it without the bun and then just be able to eat the burger and load it up with as much as you can on top of it. So it is kind of ironic that now I've made a complete 360. So I guess when you were a vegetarian, you ate a lot of grains because that's such a main food source for people who aren't eating meat. You know what I did? I ate that and I ate for my protein. I ate a lot of peanut butter. And guess what? All three kids came out with peanut allergies. Wow. Wow. Isn't that interesting? So I would keep a jar of Jif or whatever in my desk drawer with saltines. And that was just like my go-to snack. And all three kids, they'd outgrown it now, but all three had peanut allergies. That's very interesting. So what, and like, I guess your husband wrote the book, but I'm just curious, what's missing nutritionally in the vegetarian diet for you, do you think, that you feel better with now and that you crave? Do you know, I mean, can you identify something? Well, I think from a caloric perspective, I definitely needed more calories. I mean, I was running on empty. There's only so much lettuce that you can eat that's not going to necessarily fuel your body. So for me, I think that's been a huge switch of, well, I think it was just that time. So Brianna was born in 2023, and that was the South Beach diet trend. So, you know, trying to lose the baby weight after her, I remember doing that and really that calorie restriction. And that's kind of how we were always taught. Like, if you want to lose weight, just eat less calories. And I think it's a huge switch right now. It's a dramatic change and switch to, you know, to be able to eat, not worry about your calories and eat high quality animal fats. I mean, that goes against everything that we kind of were taught over the last probably 30 plus years. So that's been a change for me because it's so easy to the doctors are always right. The books are always right. And how do we, to buck that system? Now we are bucking that system, which is exciting. But when you see the results, it makes it all worth it. Yes. I grew up during the low fat era and raised my children kind of on the tail end of that. And now it's such a liberation to really know and embrace the fact that, you know, whole milk is a wonderful thing for me personally. I feel like I crave that. It's just the most, you know, when I drink 
whole grass-fed milk. I feel like I am. Is it raw milk? Are you able to access raw milk? We are able to access raw milk. Yes. Lucky. So it is a real privilege and a treat, and I feel extremely lucky to be able to get it. But my body really responds to it like, this is a good thing. I mean, it, it really speaks to me in my diet, you know, and I know you know what I'm talking about. And you feel full yes. and you feel satisfied. And that is really important because to be able to get up from the table and feel like you're actually had a satisfying that your all your needs are met is, is really difficult because we talk about that often, that it's not many places that you could go especially eating out where you don't feel guilty after you ate something, you know, your belt might be a little tight or you just don't feel satisfied. So it's not, I always, after having a full meal, a carnivore-ish meal, definitely feel that way too. Yeah. And then feeling very full, but still feeling like something was missing. You've eaten this low fat meal, lots of grains. And so, you know, you're full, but you still want that something sweet. You know, I remember that too. That's sort of a thing of the past for me, like feeling like there, you have to have that sweet thing after you even eat whatever size meal. Because I think, I think it's the addition of the fats and understanding that the fats are okay. You know, we used to have an expression, you, you need something like a piece of cheese or say, I might as well just attach this to my hips. You know, that's not the way it works in your body. So <laughs> that is true. Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're going to have to try for yourself. Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants. From their supply chain to their manufacturing processes to their facilities management, nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. From the farm to the mill to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small town made in America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com. So the restaurant, Modern Stone Age Kitchen, it sounds like an incredible culinary experience, but also how much educating do you do there on the spot? Do you have signage or is it on your menu? I mean, and do people know what it is all about? So that's a very interesting because it's something that we, I don't want to say struggle with, but it's something that we're working on because it's so difficult to keep up with everything. We've got kind of two arms. The Eastern Shore Food Lab does the education side and we do a lot of classes and teaching and training through that arm. And then we put it into practice in the kitchen. So when people walk into the kitchen, it's all open. So you see everybody. So like literally they're downstairs right now below me. So I've got probably 12 employees in there right now. So a lot of the education comes through 
through the conversation, through talking with our kitchen staff, we encourage all our staff to be able to talk and engage with our customers about the why of what we do. We have a lot of people that travel here, travel a great distance because they hear us on podcasts, they've read the book and they want to experience it. So they come in knowing and they're just like hook, line and sinker, like I get it. Then we have others who just happen to wander by and they're like, oh, cute name. Like, what is it all about? And I have to tell you, like, the one or two bad reviews that we've gotten, it's because people who didn't know what we were about and commented on the small size of our roast beef sandwich. Well, yeah, our roast beef is not going to be the Arby's that, you know, is this thick because we broke it down. Like, it's just very, very interesting. And part of that totally rests on us because our signage isn't necessarily up to par with everything. And, and also everybody doesn't read it right when they walk in. So we actually just did a whole remodel downstairs. We've, we've been here for two years now. So we just reworked our counters and I'm putting up TVs that'll have our menus up there rolling and that we have so much content from our travels. So then that way it will be constant education when people are in there of the why behind what we do, because that is something we definitely need to do better. Cause I feel like some people know, like I said, and then others just, they want a sandwich and they don't necessarily get it unless we have time to engage in a conversation. We always can improve on that one. Is it normal hours? Is it just like any restaurant someone might stumble on? Yeah. So we keep expanding our hours. So right now we actually just started Monday this week. So we're open Monday through Saturday. People joke like, why aren't you open on Sunday? I'm like, that's family day and we sleep. And we put some parameters in place. And a lot of people, I'd say 99% of people really respect us for that. And they're like, that's important. And it's important for your team. And others are like, well, we want to eat on Sunday. Like, why can't you be open? Sorry, we need to sleep because this is so labor intensive. And as I explained to people, Cisco is not dropping off the cheese for pizza tomorrow night. So on Friday evenings, we do wood-fired pizza. We only do them on Friday nights. We start at four o'clock, we go to 6.30 and we will do a hundred pizzas in two and a half hours. And people pre-order pizzas. Oh yeah, it's intense. But as I it takes us all week to make the ingredients to make those pizzas. So we bring in today or tomorrow, we'll get 60 gallons of milk delivered. That milk then gets poured into pots and we make it cheese next week. And then that cheese goes on the pizza and goes into our sandwiches. So we just don't have the bandwidth to necessarily produce more because it takes all week to make those ingredients. And it's a very, (laughs) with Bill and I both being from education and at the beginning, you know, if looking back, if, if we actually spoke to a business person about our business model, they would have completely laughed at us. They would have been like, are you freaking crazy? There's no way that this will ever make it because I mean, we put our money into people and I'm really proud that we put our money into people because we, our ingredient costs are very, very low because we're bringing in the raw ingredients. And then our value add is through the people that we employ and you know, everything from our mayonnaise to our coleslaw to the, the meat, everything we make. As, as Bill likes to say, the only thing that we don't make from scratch right now, and this is, is our Old Bay seasoning. Do you know what Old Bay is? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. But like, it's Old Bay. <laughs> I mean, I think we're okay. If that's the one thing that we don't make from scratch is Old Bay seasoning, I think we're doing okay. Yeah. It's also so <laughs> Maryland of you guys. It is. like, But right now we're perfecting our pumpkin spice because... Yes, we just got a really nice espresso machine and we have a single origin organic coffee that we roast and everything here or that we bring in roasted locally. And I want to do a pumpkin spice latte, but not with all the junk in it. So we'll put that with our modern stone age kitchen rolls. So he's almost got that one down. And um, one of the fun things we do for our staff and, and our customers really like it is 
everybody's birthday, they tell Bill what their favorite dessert is. And then he modern Stone Age kitchenizes it, which is really, really fun. So we've had everything from tiramisu cheesecake to our son's birthdays this weekend. So he asked for pretzel salad. Do you yes, know pretzel salad? I know pretzel salad. Okay. With like the strawberries and Mom, like, do you know pretzel no, salad? No, I don't. It's a Pennsylvania thing. My husband, his family is all from Western Pennsylvania. Salad is the funniest. Salad. Yeah. It's like a layer. Yeah, you tell it. Yeah, I don't actually totally know, but it's pretzels. And then it's, I think there's some whipped cream in there and strawberry and like a jello kind of it's thing. Definitely Cool Whip or a Miracle or something. Yes, yes, yes. So it's our sourdough pretzels, it's local strawberries, it's gelatin that he sourced and, you know, are rendered. So, you know, we'll see. Billy gets, so check our social media tomorrow on Friday. That, that would be the, the 22nd and you'll see the pretzel salad unveiling. Oh my goodness. And so do you guys make the pretzels? Oh yeah. So they're sourdough pretzels. <laughs> we have hot sourdough pretzels every day. So that's one of like the things that we're known for is for our pretzels. And we do a fermented mustard that comes with it. We got to come I by. Know. That sounds so fun. A- absolutely. How far is it from DC? Oh, we're only an hour and 15. You need to come visit. We're in a nice part because we're right between Philly, DC, BWI. So like when people fly here, any one of those airports works. So I just say what's cheapest, you know, and grab the flight there because we're right in the middle. So it's nice. And what I love about Bill and I said we'd never own a restaurant because we met one and, and we know what restaurants are like. I guess I could say we refuse to ever own that yes. kind <laughs> of restaurant. You know, we will never, ever own that kind of restaurant. We've admitted, okay, we own a restaurant now, but people are happy. Like people come to us because they know they're getting nourishing food. Our team is very proud of what they're producing and because they see the impact on our community. So the environment downstairs is just oozing, like oozing positivity. I mean, it's kind of like people have joked, it's like cheers in here. Like, you know, everybody's name when they walk in and, and that's been really fulfilling. And now we've had customers that have been with us long enough that we actually are seeing physical changes of them walking through the front door. I mean, I can think of one who typically comes in a walker. They're not using a walker anymore. And I can't attribute that just all to our food, but they actually say a huge piece of it is, you know, I've changed the way I eat eating differently. And if I eat any grains, they're sourdough. You know, I have more of a nose to tail approach. I'm trying pâtés and things that I wouldn't have tried before. So that is just extremely rewarding to see a physical difference in some of our customers as well. That's amazing. And I was going to say about the kind of joyful vibe you described there in the workplace, well-nourished people have a lot of, is, is it endorphins? You know, that, the, yeah, ha- so. you know, the, the brain chemical that makes you happy and makes serotonin, serotonin. <laughs> whatever it is that's going on in the brain that makes you feel good. Good nutrition has so much to do with that. And the opposite is true too. You know, you're, you're laden down with sugars and, and, and processed foods and you're nutrient depleted because your produce is grown in poor soil with chemicals or, you know, and all that stuff. And you don't have the nutrition to back up your emotional well-being. I think that's just a really, really important connection for people to make. So you have an extraordinary family. You have a family business together. You do all this traveling, but you say you live in the suburbs. I want to know, how is your family life typical? And how do you fit in three teenagers in a world where, you know, the norm is excess consumption, cheap food, stuff, digital content? And what tips do you have for families regarding healthy living and eating with teenagers? So I think it's important to note that I've already shared that I was a vegetarian. I want your audience to know that None of our children were fed on baby food that we made. They were all fed on Gerber or whatever the organic brand was at the time because that's where we were on our journey 
then. When Bill and I started having kids, we just were not at a place that we were able to mill our own baby food and, and do that type of thing. We, we weren't there. And I think if that's the number one message that your listeners can take away from me is it is a journey and you need to know where you are in that space and give yourself grace and know that there's things that you can do along the way to always improve your family's health, but you need to do it intentionally and, and truly just give yourself some grace. Bill is very embarrassed that we've got pictures of the kids sitting up on our counters at our, at our house. And we first moved in, we, all the kids were born in New Jersey before we moved to Maryland. And they're sitting there eating the dinosaur chicken nuggets and a bowl of mac and cheese. And I'm like, you know what? That's where we were. And that's okay. Like I think back, if I was pregnant now, I was pregnant as a vegetarian. Oh my gosh, the things I just think that I didn't provide my child. Thank God she's a sophomore at UVA. Like she's doing good. But it's part of the journey. And for us, it was little things at a time that we kind of chipped away at. And our second biggest argument, and it's funny, both of them revolve around food, was cereal. So as a parent growing up, I just know like we had cereal in the house. And on the weekends, it was a treat to have those little boxes of like the cocoa rice krispies with the like pops. You remember those? Like the general mills, like they probably still make them. I don't know. I don't go down the cereal aisle at the grocery store, so I have no clue. But those were like the that was like the, the cheat, right? The weekend cereal. But there was the brown cereals, as I would call them. <laughs> they were the healthy cereals. <laughs> like the oat. The oat, exactly. No. Puffed yes. brown rice. Puffed yeah. something that's healthy <laughs> yeah. somehow. No sugar. <laughs> no sugar. Exactly. Yeah. So it was good for you. When the kids were little and you needed that easy breakfast, well, my question to Bill was, well, what cereal can we get? We'll get the healthy kind. And he was like, no. There's no cereal. We're not doing cereal. I'm like, but no, the healthy cereal. And then we realized that we were having two totally different conversations because when we were talking about breakfast foods, in his view, cereal wasn't even an option. Cereal wasn't even on the table. It was eggs or bacon or sausage, whatever, you know, get, getting them some good fat and protein. But for me, it was cereal is in the easy category and like, just what kind can I pick? And I think that's really important because it's difficult at home when everybody's coming from a different view because everybody's raised differently. And then if, you know, being married and trying to raise your own kids, making sure you're having the same conversation about food is really, really important. Because I'll tell you that cereal one went on for a good bit with us because I just couldn't understand. And then he couldn't understand why I couldn't hear him. It was like, I said like, no cereal. So that was a big one for us. The other huge one is just don't buy it. Just don't put it in the cart. And I think another huge one is we reward our kids through food. It's just natural. I know like the grandparent thing, they come over, let's go take them out for ice cream. Let's go get this. It's the special treat. And we have made a conscious effort to change our special treats to be time, not to be food focused. And that's difficult because truly what do kids want and what do we need right now? I mean, I feel it more than ever. I'm going to like fill up as like, I got one in college and like a senior, I'm filling up, sorry. But it's time with our kids, like take that special and cause they just want it. They don't need to be in front of that screen. And it is very difficult because I, sorry, you got me all emotional now because I, I do. I'm like, I got another one leaving the nest. Don't that's um, okay. That is, sorry. <laughs> I'm very transparent, clearly. <laughs> I literally was leading the iPad movement for my school district. Like literally, I was the iPad lady. You mean bringing iPads in and being oh, like- Oh yeah, that was me. Like I set them up at our kitchen table. Like I had at one point, I had 50 iPads set up and the kids would help me. It was it was literally when they first iPod touches came out and the iPads. So we had the first generations, the kids would help me set them up. Like we'd hit all the buttons and like log into the different accounts and they would download the apps. And I will tell you, there is a huge reason for- 
technology with, I could justify any app to you. The hand-eye coordination those little kids were getting when they were popping bubbles and things. But there's also needs to be limits. The queen of putting limits, as my children would tell you, on every device and knowing what they're on and what they're not on. So that was very difficult because I was bringing technology into the house and then putting limits on them. But we talked about, you know, with the kids, just as much as eating bad food can become an addiction, being on those screens can become an addiction. And Bill and I have been very transparent about it that, you know, we can go down that rabbit hole too. And we have to put restrictions, you know, on ourselves. So that's one other piece that we've done with eating out. That was another one of your questions, right, Mary? Like with the kids and eating out? Eating healthy, just eating healthy. So what's been interesting is as soon as you make things non-negotiable, like our kids don't even ask. So like going to McDonald's or getting fast food, that's not even an ask because they know it's never going to happen ever. And that brings me to, so we lived abroad in Ireland for a year and they were 10, 12, and 14 that year. So Alyssa was 10 and she was playing Camogie, which is the female version of hurling in Ireland. And they won the championship and it was a huge deal. So where does the team go to celebrate? Yeah. McDonald's. 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 (laughs) And Alyssa, I'll never forget. She just looks at us and these big eyes and you could see the tears starting because she knew like non-negotiable and it was... Melissa, don't worry. Of course you could go. Like we were not going to deny our child this amazing experience with her teammates because of our food. I mean, because it's almost like orthorexia, right? On the other extreme, like, but there's also that, that social piece too, that we have to realize the social implications of some of these. And the kids would joke about, you know, friends wouldn't necessarily want to come over our house after school because our snacks were different. And that's one of the things that we found is there's not the grab and go convenient snacks. You're not going to just walk in, open the pantry and grab a bag of something. Like mostly the stuff in our house, you kind of have to put together and make. So if that's one thing I could share with parents is if you can have any grab and goes, like for us, it's cheese sticks. Like that's an easy one. And pepperoni, we ferment our potatoes in a 2% salt line and then we fry them in high quality animal fat. So we do have potato chips in our house. It's just, they've been processed the correct way. And I'll tell you when kids come over and they actually have it. They devour the potato chips. Yeah, I bet they're so good. I bet they don't last long. They don't. And they've got that like nice oily on them or, you know, fat. Yeah. So they're good. And the other thing that's been really interesting, I just think with the kids growing up, we would drive to Pennsylvania, our illegal activities as a family to get raw milk because raw milk is illegal in Maryland. So Bill would drive three hours each week to get raw milk. That is what kids would come over and go to our fridge for to get Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. That was I mean, really I believe cool. it because raw milk tastes like ice cream. It does. Yes. It does. It yeah. Does. So that was that was always really interesting because it was always Dr. Bill's milk. The kids would always come over for Dr. Bill's milk. It was raw milk. That's awesome. I have so many questions. First of all, living in Ireland, what did how did that happen? And what did your kids do for school when you were in Ireland? So Bill was on sabbatical. So he was a visiting professor at University College of Dublin. That's one other thing that we have done as a family. That's really the only reason I'm sitting here talking to you is because we've taken advantage literally of every single opportunity that has come across. If someone has made an offer, like come visit, guess what? <laughs> we're going to come visit. And we're probably going to bring five ki- or three kids with us too. It'll be the five of us. And we've reciprocated that too. We actually have friends coming from Kenya in October. They've been, this is the second time they've been here and we've been to Kenya with them to their place and we've been to Greece with them. And anyway, like Bill met them in Iceland at a cheese making class. Who knew? Cause they were like, if you're ever in Africa, come by. So like, this is how we roll. We're living in Ireland. Bill had to do a keynote down in South Africa. 
So we figured out how to make it all work and all, of course, count for work. So we fly and he's like, well, you know, that lady from the cheese class in Iceland, they live in Kenya. They have the largest cheese making factory in all of Kenya. She said we could stop by. Like, you think I should reach out to her? I was like, sure, why not? So he texts Delia. We have this conversation. Next thing we know, we're literally flying to Kenya from South Africa. And I remember looking at him on the plane like, what are we doing? We're going to see this woman who you met her family in Iceland, but she lives in Kenya and we're bringing our kids to Kenya? Like, what are we doing? Unbeknownst to us, her family has the largest white rhino preserve in all of Kenya. So when we were staying with her sister, we were staying in a five-star resort in Kenya. Unbelievable. Like elephants outside our door every morning. So, and she's coming actually in three weeks and she's one of the members of our, our board, the Eastern Shore Food Lab. So for us, it has been food has connected us to people literally around the world that we never would have met. And those relationships are so deep and so true and intentional. And that's really, really exciting. So getting back to Ireland, that was a visiting professor gig when he was there. And that was scary because we rented our house here and serendipitous, we actually rented our house furnished because we had someone in our community, their house was struck by lightning and they lost literally everything about two months before we were going to leave. And we actually happened to know them. So it was like, hey, if we can help you. So it was a win-win. So it was kind of crazy how those things happen. So, cause people always ask like, what do you do with your house? If you're gonna go abroad for a year, you can't just sit on a mortgage. I mean, that just doesn't financially work. So that was how we were able to make that piece work. And then the kids were enrolled in school. And what we found out the hard way in school is that for secondary, for high school in America, secondary, they would call it in Ireland, it's all fee-based. If you want to get into a public school, it's pretty much when your kids are born. So that was a huge one because we weren't in a financial position at all to pay a tuition for our two older kiddos because we just figured they'll go into public school. So what was really interesting is Alyssa went to a public school and she was in fourth class, it's called. She wore a uniform and it was Catholic, but it was public school. So that was like, blow your mind as an American because none of that lines up. And then Billy and Brianna, you're going to laugh. They actually went to, it's called the high school. So like of all the names of every place in Ireland, they went to the high school in Dublin and they wore uniforms, but it was private. So that was a whole change. But what was great is they played all these sports and it was an awesome experience and their breaks were phenomenal. So they had a whole week off at Halloween so we were able to go to Italy for a whole week. They didn't miss school. So we did three weeks in Africa in March. And it was just the way Easter that year backed up to kind of St. Patrick's Day. So they literally missed two days of school and we were gone for three weeks. Wow. Like they wow. have just phenomenal, phenomenal breaks. So we took advantage of every opportunity when we lived abroad there because the price of flights clearly was much, much less already over the pond to be able to get to a lot of places. And then we were able to do a lot of research when we were there. So that actually is where Bill finished up the research for the book and where everything kind of came full circle. So, so cool. And all this traveling reminds me again, I think we've asked you this before, but if you could speak a little bit more to it about airports and planes and being in places that you're, you don't know, like, I mean, I guess abroad, it might be a little bit easier than it is here in the States, but that is one of the things that I find hardest to find real food and to eat well at all. And just how do you manage that? How much of that are you bringing your own stuff? And what is that like? And, and at what point are you just sort of like, well, can't really find anything. So I'll just eat. I don't know. And then what do you go for if you can't no, that's find a very, anything? That's a very, very good question. Off the bat, the food is just better abroad. 
I mean, without a doubt, you're, you're just getting better food to begin with. So I think it's actually a little bit easier. I also feel it's actually a lot easier to find good food when you're abroad because so many areas still have their local butcher shop. They have their local village, you know, in, especially in Ireland, we were just back in August and it's funny now. So we were abroad 17, 18. So we've been back for five years and kind of looking through that lens now on our system, like there is no butcher shop. You get it prepackaged at the grocery store, you know, to get your veg, to be able to go to a farmer. It's, it's really like the farmer's market to be able to go to a lot of those places. So we have found traveling abroad it to be much easier to get food that's kind of aligned to the way that we choose to eat than it definitely is here in the States. From an airport perspective, that's a struggle. That is just the struggle bus. Like we have not gotten first of all, the meals. So like when you get the meal flying abroad, you're, you're going to get a meal as opposed to the States. Now you can even be on a plane for five hours and you still get, which they're so good. The biscos, like yeah, biscos. Yeah, yeah, those, are great. <laughs> those are so good um, from the Netherlands. Yeah. So anyway, you'll get those, you know, and there's no peanuts of course, which is understandable because of the allergies, but you're not getting anything that's full fat. And even the stores in the airports, what we have seen, we just flew through Newark and JFK this summer. So for us, with a family of five, we will drive the extra two or three hours to go to an airport where flights are cheaper. We have just made that decision because it ends up being worth it in the long run. When you look at the cost of flights, they literally were half the price to Ireland when we flew out of Newark than if we flew out being an hour or two closer in Philly. So we're going to take that and we're going to do the extra drive. But I was really impressed. They had redone a lot of their stores in there where they had more grab-and-go, high-protein options for snacks, which was good because we typically will pack snacks for the plane because we know that's just not happening. And what are you packing? Cheese sticks? Yeah. So things like that, meat sticks, pork rinds, because then we always just got to, I always worry about the stink factor. You know what I mean? On the plane, like you got to make sure, like you're not going to bring a can of tuna fish and like open that up on the plane. Like yeah. you're just not going to do that. <laughs> Sardines. <laughs> exactly. Like we're, we're just not doing tin fish on the plane. We do do a lot with cheese and meat sticks. That's always kind of a big go-to because even the things that are keto or we also shy away from all the fake food too, which is difficult because being in this food space, you know, it's a lot of replacement and we're not looking to replace with fake ingredients just because it doesn't have carbs in it. That's a huge one for us. And as a family, we also have actually eaten. We've done gaps. So we started with bone broth and done the whole like elimination gaps diet. We've done carnivore. We've done keto. We've done literally every single diet as a family. And that's been very interesting too, to be able to talk about how food has made us feel or not feel with different things. And I think that, you know, Kids are in tune with the way that they feel, especially if they're interested in athletics and performance. They see the benefits of food on eating real food. Oh, that last thing you said is so interesting to me that as a family, you went through these different diets. I, I would love to have another whole conversation about that. But can you sum that up and say, was there one that you felt like your family did the best on? And I realize this is not for everybody out there. Everybody's different. No, it's but- not. So I will say keto was the easiest twofold. There were two rules that we could give you a list. These are keto friendly. These are keto approved. So that was very easy. Like, cause you kind of had rules and then we all tested our P. So you had then the end result. Like, did you cheat? Did you not? Are you in ketosis? Are you not? Like you had that psychological test at the end. But what we found is we still might be sitting on the couch and everybody had a little bit of ice cream, but it was keto ice cream. Is that really what we want? Do we want them having all that fake stuff? No, we don't. So that was a really interesting conversation across the board because 
just from a kind of a rule perspective, it worked very well. But what we are actually fueling ourselves with wasn't the best. Now, did we need to buy the keto ice cream? No. Or the keto chips or whatever it was? No. But that was part of it. That was part of our experiment as a family. Okay. When you go into the grocery store and you're looking at packaging and labeling, and this says keto approved and keto friendly, well then you are. Oh, or you want to buy it. <laughs> you do. And when you're trying different things with your kiddos, then we did, we gave it a try, but that doesn't work for us. So, I mean, right now we've landed on and, and we don't want to call eat like a human, a diet. It's an approach, but that is how we eat. We eat like a human. We eat real food as processed in the best way possible. You know, like we've talked about, it does take some time, but once you get into a routine and a habit, and I think what's important is we've also given ourselves grace. So complete transparency here. Bill is on a plane right now to Austin. He's doing some fellowship down there, which is super cool and exciting, but he's the cook. Well, actually my son's not the cook too. I don't cook. I clean really good. I do the social media. I do all those other things. I don't cook. My biggest nervousness right now is crap. What are we having for dinner tonight? Because he's not home and Billy's got practice and like, what's going to happen? And you know what I might have to do? I might have to go to the grocery store and just buy a whole roasted chicken. And guess what? That's okay. That's taken some time of realizing like, it's okay. I'm trying to feed my family the best way possible. I am running a business. I've got 12 people downstairs. We're feeding customers. And if I have to go buy a chicken from the groceries, a whole chicken, I'm not buying chicken breasts, a whole chicken. That's okay. He actually, I don't think I brought this up at all. He did a television show for National Geographic called The Great Human Race. I think it was 1516. So literally we co-parent on everything. And within two months, he swept away to Africa for a month and he's gone. And it was like, oh my God. Again, like I just shared, he does all the cooking. And I know there's like these mystery things that he would have fermenting in the counter. I was like, how am I going to manage all this? And then before he left, he showed me kefir because we would drink kefir shakes in the morning. I had no idea what it was before. And I think this is a, a huge kind of takeaway for your audience too. Like some of these mystery things, they're really stinking easy when you just ask what they are. All I know is Bill would like get this jar of mystery substance, white stuff. And I'm sorry, white stuff is supposed to be in the refrigerator. Like it just blows my mind that like dairy is non-refrigerated. It just doesn't make sense. But he would take out this jar of white stuff and then he would get the raw milk and then he would like do this straining thing. And then he would put it in these little containers and then put cold milk from the fridge back in the cabinet, non-refrigerated. It just blew my mind. But when he took me through this whole process and I saw how easy it was, and I was kind of like, seriously, that's what you've been doing for like three years now. And I really thought there was like this big experiment. Like I was giving him a lot more credit for what he was doing than what he was really doing because I had to do it when he left for the show. It is so true. It seems so much more complicated. It I was like, it that is. was it? The one thing, and I joked like when, when he was, when he was gone on the show, like People were like, how is it different? And I was like, yeah, I cheated on my husband because I had to buy yogurt at the grocery store. Like <laughs> I did, like I just couldn't do it all myself. So that was one place where I just knew that I needed to buy yogurt because I couldn't make it, but you got to give yourself grace. And you know, the first thing that we started with for us as a family was bread. Think about it. If you make your kid a sandwich every single day for their entire schooling, and, and he wrote a blog post on this, I forget the number. You could do the math real quick 180 times, you know, 12, whatever it is. That's a lot of bread. But if you could switch that one thing out and do a slow fermented wild sourdough bread, you are changing their lives right there. Literally one piece of bread at a time. And our recipes in the book, it's also on our website, Eat Like a Human, feel free. It's called our Sissa sandwich bread because our youngest Alyssa did not like the hard outer crust of sourdough bread. She wanted like a potato bread, like a sandwich bread. So Bill came up with a oatmeal honey 
sourdough sandwich bread for her. So that's why it's called Sissa sandwich bread. But the, the recipe is on our website. So please feel free to use it because that's one of our things. Like we want to meet people where they are too on the journey. So if you want to learn how to make it, we'll give you the recipe. If you have no time, but you want to feed your kids this way or your family, come in and you know, you can buy the things and we, when we also ship. So right now I know I've got an order to ship out six loaves of Sissa sandwich bread because clearly some, some mom's stocking her, her freezer for, uh, for back to school lunches, which is good. Oh, that sounds great. I'm definitely going to make that. We're on this road trip now. I'm speaking to you from a hotel and um, I made a sourdough bread so we could slice and have it on the road because I'm like you, I don't want to go, I don't want to, you know, get sandwich bread and stuff. I don't, I don't want to eat it because it doesn't, it makes me feel not as well. So, and if you knew me, you would know what a kefir nerd I am. You say kefir, I say kefir. Kefir. Same thing. (laughs) I am a a total kefir nerd and people so much so that people just they go oh no she's talking about kefir oh my god and (laughs) we it's a constant in our house and I just love it so much and it has enhanced my life for the last what 10-12 years since I discovered it but you have the slow food thing down so exquisitely but you're super busy. You do all these things, traveling, you run this restaurant and nonprofit, the Eastern Shore Food Lab, which we want to hear more about. So what does slow living mean to you? Slow living is a new term for me. And it's one that I wish I embraced 20 years ago. I wish my priorities were slightly different when the kids were younger. And I think that is directly in line with slow living, just taking that more intentional time of being present and really experiencing all aspects of your life in a meaningful way. And I don't know why my brain goes here, but it does. And if this relates to anyone who's listening, then I hope I can help you. But like, I had an obsession with my kitchen floor and I don't know why. And I wish the amount of time that I spent vacuuming it, and we didn't have a dog then, or scrubbing the grout or whatever it was like, who cares? Like, I wish I had used that time to be more intentional with my kids to maybe practice more in the garden, you know, have more of that slow living time with them. It's just funny how priorities change. And maybe as you see it speeding up on the other side of childhood with your kids, you realize that it's so limited. For me right now, that idea of slow living is meeting the people who make our food, One is us, you know, clearly here, but our local farmers and being intentional and having those conversations and getting to know people and the why behind what they do, because that's really where true relationships are formed. And I think that's where some of our best friendships that Bill and I have are with people that we've taken the time to kind of slow down that are in line with what we do as well and have some of those deeper conversations. Oh, thank you. What does good dirt mean to you? (laughs) So when I hear good dirt right now, this is just where I am in, in, in my world. I just think about compost and I think about all our farmers that we support and I think about the system. And for us, one of the things that we always talk about is removing links from the food chain. And I think as much as we can do that, it's really, really important. So for us right now, we have actually been focused a lot on dirt, believe it or not here, because composting is another main component of what we do. And you can imagine making everything from scratch. We have a lot. So we are utilizing every single part of the plant to the animal. And that brings us to compost. And I have to tell you, well, as you know, that is a stinky problem. And we have struggled with it. We know the importance of it. And we were doing five gallon buckets to have our good dirt, bringing it to a camp, the campus garden here at Washington College. And my the back of my son's truck, 
oh, it was just not not a good thing. Um, those buckets would spill and oh gosh, it was difficult. But we knew it's important. Like we have to be able to, to complete the whole cycle. So now we were working with a company called Shore Soils and they literally bring a 95 gallon trash can and we put all our compost in the compostable bags in it and they take it out. And the best part is, oh, it's fantastic. It is like, it used to be a huge chore. It still is kind of a chore, but well, it's not, no, it's not a chore. It's just like taking the trash out now. But not only are they composting it to get that good dirt, but they're giving a percentage back of what we produce as a restaurant back to the farms that are then feeding us with their produce. And I'm just so proud of how we've been able to close that cycle, which is really, really cool right now in a different way. That's amazing. That reminded me of another question I had earlier. So it's really amazing, especially for people that are at all tuned in or have been tuned into these issues. It's like almost a little bit unbelievable, everything that you're doing, which is amazing. And the fact that you are bucking the system and going so so far outside the system in so many ways it's really quite amazing. And I wonder to what degree you're willing to be transparent with us about what that looks like on paper, because it is so far outside the system and our experience in trying to do things the right way and more healthy. It just, our system isn't set up that way. And that's my understanding is that's why, especially in this country, things have gotten so far the other way because it's cheaper and you make more money if you don't do things the right way. So I'm just wondering how it actually does work for you guys, because... A lot of times when people try to do things the sustainable way, it ends up being not sustainable. And that's a systemic issue. That's not anyone's fault. But I'm just wondering how, what that is like for you. So I do the money for home and for the business here. And I will be 100% transparent. I'm always transparent. Bill and I both are probably to a fault. I lose sleep at night. I run numbers in my head all the time. This week sucks. It was payroll last Friday. Taxes were due and my American Express bill is due tomorrow. It's a lot of money. And it's just very interesting how we've gone from at a home perspective, we were talking like hundreds of things. We started here, we were talking in thousands. Now we're talking in 10,000s. And my heart like does palpitations, especially because I know we're employing people who have kids at home, that they're putting their kids into soccer camps because essentially we're paying for it. In the same breath though, I think of last Christmas, like we were so gratified knowing that when they talked about Christmas morning, like we put those gifts under that tree, like, holy crap, how cool is that? Like we've worked so hard. Getting back to kind of the food cost piece and everything, we kind of flew by the seat of our pants in the beginning. We literally did. And we didn't take any money and we still don't take that much. We put right back into it. We figured what we need to survive as a family. And, I, and that's uh, survive is a, is a stretch, but like to be comfortable as a family, because the last thing to have, you know, money woes on top of the stress of running a business and is would be very, very difficult. Not that we don't, but we just tried to make sure that we're comfortable with what we have. The nice thing is we could take home dinner quite often with <laughs> leftover food. <laughs> so that that is helpful. One other thing from my education background that has helped tremendously is I did a lot of grant writing. So I had experience with that. So we've been able to secure grants. We secured a $100,000 grant from the state. It was called an innovation grant. So we were able to get new equipment. So we have like a $60,000 bread oven downstairs now. Now we built this business though on a bread oven that we got off Facebook marketplace that was discontinued in 1973. So we've been working, so we built a business on a piece of equipment that was discontinued for 50 years. 
Wow. Yeah. So to weave that story and tell the state, so now we actually have a proper equipment downstairs. So like our bakers are loving life right now. So that's part of it too, is looking at ways that you can get capital. And it's not just necessarily because we'd have to sell a lot of pretzels, like a lot of pretzels to fund that <laughs> oven. A lot, a lot of sourdough lot pretzels. Of pretzels. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a lot of pretzels. And we also now are making conscious decisions, really trying to look at our, at our numbers. Um, we're using a program called Margin Edge. If there's any other foodies that are listening, it allows you to upload all your invoices and it itemizes them by line. And then it'll show you trends and prices as it changes. So then that way you can really look at your food costs. Because truthfully, we have not changed the loaf of our sourdough bread since we were baking out of our house, which is a problem because our overhead right now is a lot more expensive. But I also want to look at these numbers. So when we make that change, we will be very transparent with our audience about the why. And also we, they see, we have mature people downstairs working who clearly have families. And I'm very proud. We pay everybody a very good wage and we've been able to give them increases because we've said as we continue to grow, everyone grows and moves up. So, and we've had four people that are here over two years that have been with us almost since the beginning, which is really exciting too. And I want to get back because one other point you had asked me about dining out and questions. Two things that we use. There's an app called Seed Scout. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one. No. So put that on your list and put it in the show notes because this is a good one, Seed Scout. And the only reason I know is because we happen to be in it. They put restaurants that do not use any industrial nut or seed oils. So it's one of those that is starting to grow as people, you know, add, but let's be honest, there's not many places that don't use, you know, industrial nut or seed oils. So the numbers are slow, but I think as people start demanding that, that's going to change. And then the other, are you familiar with 12 Spoons, Weston A. Price? Oh, we know Weston Price. I'm not sure what 12 Spoons is. Okay. So 12 Spoons, that's a very other good resource. So I'm very proud that we are the first restaurant to officially receive 12 Spoons. And I don't know them all off the top of my head, but it's everything from uses bone broth, does a fermentation process, all the grains are sourdough, does a nose. It's literally our rules looked at as a restaurant. So when you're traveling, if you go on the website, you can search in the area where you are for restaurants and they may have only gotten five spoons or eight spoons, but at least it's a, it's a way that you can kind of start filtering. Cause let's be honest, Yelp isn't telling you much or, you know, the other ones at all about the nutrition behind food. So those are two that I are both just uh, us based. I'm not aware of anything other than if there's a slow food app or something like that, you know, international. That's great. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for being so transparent about the business side of things, because I just know that that's something that people think about and rarely talk about. And it's just a reality that I think... Can I put a nugget out there? Yeah, yeah. I can remember when we made the jump. And I mean, I again, like I said, I do the bills. So I can remember laying in bed and rolling numbers in my head and knowing that my job, I brought in X amount of money a month. And it was like, how are we going to cover that? And at that point, I was literally equating it to pretzels and loaves of bread. I was like, oh my God, that's like so many. And, and we were doing all the work. And now I look back, you know, like I said, we're at a different level. But if I had known when you're truly doing something authentically and you surround yourselves with people who are like-minded and who are committed as well to a mission that's, I feel worthy, it's amazing really what can happen. And we thought we knew the town. So we're in Chestertown, Maryland. Bill was a professor at Washington College here for 15 years and we knew Chestertown. And when things didn't work out working here, like we were going to leave, like we were done, like peace out. We're going to, we're taking the kids. We're going somewhere else. And we made a commitment to stay here. And we learned about a side of town that I never, ever, 
ever saw through the college lens at all, because I feel like we had blinders on because it was just this one lane that we were seeing town through. And as soon as those glasses were removed, the people and the connections that we made, I'm like, we live in the coolest place ever, just because we were just coming from this one lane of, of how we knew people. And now the people that walk through our front door, they were our neighbors for the past 15 years. And just for whatever reason, our paths never crossed. And that's the relationships that have been built that never would have been built unless we took this jump. And believe me, it's not for everyone. I get that. And I still question it. Sometimes we look each other at night. We're like, what are we doing? We could have just stayed safe and gotten a pension and we'd have tuition exchange right now for our kids and not be totally stressing about college tuition. But to see the people that we're impacting, like that makes all the difference. That's wonderful. So tell me a little bit about your work with Eastern Shore Food Lab and what you guys are So at the Eastern Shore Food Lab, that's our nonprofit. And Bill started that through Washington College. And our mission is looking at ancestral diets and, and working with traditional groups around the world and trying to A, preserve those diets. So Bill does a lot of anthropological kind of research in those. And that's actually in the book is preservation would be one piece of it. Then we try to apply those processes into our modern world. And we do a lot of classes as well through the food lab. So I'm sitting up here in our food lab and we have completely redone an apartment up here. So we have a whole teaching kitchen. So we used to try to do it downstairs and there's no way because now we have full bore restaurants. So we've got this great space upstairs. We typically have about 12 people in a class and we do everything from sourdough, bread, to cheese making, to fermented dairy, kefir, and you know that's a highlight in it, and butter to literally he'll put half a pig up here and break down half a pig into primals and then show people. Because that's a big one too. We want to meet people where they are. So in our area, we have lots of farms where you can get half a pig, but people don't even know where to start. And just from a financial perspective, it is so much more economically relevant to be able to bring in half a pig and break it down than being able to buy all those individual pieces saran wrapped for you at the grocery store. So the other piece that we do at the food lab is we do a lot of food trips. So we just got back from Ireland where we took 12 people with us on a food tour across Ireland. So we look at the ancestral past. So butter was a big one in Ireland. And then we bring it all the way up to the modern. And we ended at having dinner in the personal home of a two-star Michelin chef, Kevin Thornton at his home in Ireland for like a seven course. That's amazing. Meal of a lifetime. Yeah, it's, it's very fun. So Bill also does a lot of podcasts and blog posts and things. So our website, Eat Like a Human, we're revising that at the moment with the food lab to get more information out there. So the food lab is the more educational side of things. Yes. So the book is Eat Like a Human. The food lab is the nonprofit education, outreach, training, research, and then the kitchen puts it all together into practice. So we can feed you, we can teach you, you know, we can hit you wherever you are. So much fun. And with that, as we wrap up today, what do you think it is that you want the audience to most understand about what you're doing at Modern Stone Age Kitchen? I think the biggest takeaway that I would love your audience to hear is I know we're doing a lot and I know it's overwhelming listening to all these pieces. But remember what I said in the beginning, we started with dinosaur chicken nuggets and mac and cheese. And that's really important. So know that it's a process and pick one thing that you wanna change. Pick one way that you're going to remove some of those links in your food chain. I recommend it's bread. If you make sandwiches for your kids all the time, the next thing I would recommend is yogurt because yogurt is stinking expensive and you can make such a high quality yogurt at home. So pick one thing and start there and get the process down and 
understand the time management perspective, especially if you've got two people that are working jobs, it can be difficult and give yourself grace. And it's okay if you've got to give them, you know, try to get the organic, then I guess chicken nuggets, if you have to do it sometime, but know that it's a process and know that they will turn out okay. And you'll be okay because at the end of the night, that is what's really important. Thank you so much. (laughs) That's so helpful to remember. Don't scrub your kitchen floor all the time. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Don't scrub the kitchen floor. (laughs) Well, Christina, as we've said so many times, we just can't wait to come see you guys. For anyone in the area, where can you find you? So where you can find us on social. So wherever you are in the world, you can find us on social. I'm at Modern Stone Age Kitchen. I'm also at Modern Stone Age Mama. And Bill is at Dr. Bill Schindler, Dr. Bill Schindler. And the Food Lab is ES Food Lab, all on social. You can find us. Website is eatlikeahuman.com. You can grab an autographed copy of Bill's book there and modernstoneagekitchen.com. And we also ship. We're working on shipping our refrigerated and frozen items. We're not there yet. Got to figure out the dry ice thing. But right now we're shipping all our sourdough products. So if anybody needs some of our goodies across the country, we can get those to you too. Awesome. And if they're at all in the DC or Philly area. Yeah. And you want to come physically see us. We are at 236 Cannon Street in Chestertown. We are a half an hour from the Bay Bridge. If you're in the area, you know the Bay Bridge. And we're about an hour from Philly and about an hour and a half from DC. So. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And only like three hours from New York. We're, We're not very far. And it's a nice spot. And if you're taking the trip down, we're an hour to the beach. So you can do a nice little beach trip too. And we're right on the river. It's a really cute little river town. Very cool. Okay, Christina, thank you so much. Have a beautiful rest of your day and week. I have loved this conversation. It has been so interesting. And thank you so much for your time. And we look forward to going out there to Chestertown and seeing you at the Modern Stone Age Kitchen. I can't wait. And my husband's going to love it. So we will see you there. Great. Thanks, Mary. Thank you for tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at We Are Lady Farmer. That's We Are Lady Farmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.